YouTube channel. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's what it looks like on the outset, but I'm not even sure if that's what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyways, man, um, uh, like I was saying, I'm, I'm so excited to talk to you. I actually have watched a couple of your interviews before um, because uh, I've, I watched your interview with Keneally, who I'm a huge fan of. And then um, to try to learn more about you, I, I watched some other ones. I watched one with the Mastelados, and uh, and um, so it's just, it's just so exciting to get to to meet you. Thank you. I mean, what what do you know about me? <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So in your conversation with the Mastelados, um, you're and by the way, you're going to have to answer the same question because I'm curious what you know about me. I'm thinking that our common connection must be Sean Crowder. Um, And so, um, but your connections with King Crimson uh, are the first time that I heard about you. And then I thought it was so exciting when you and Sean started your um, music lessons series um, because I was excited for Sean to get to learn from you. Um, and yeah, so I was actually just thinking like, while this morning I was like eating breakfast and making coffee and listening to you talking to the Mastelados and, um, you know, the first King Crimson record I ever got was, um, was the single happy with what you have to be happy with. Mm-hmm. I like remember vividly when I bought that and then I went out and got the power to believe and then I became uh, obsessed with Fripp and, um, you know, Adrian Ballou. And um, and so I must have, but I'm not sure if I even knew of your associations with like the Crimson Project until much later. Um, and I'm a huge Devin Townsend fan. So, you know, I bought Empath the day it came out and like I was um, watching live videos. I mean, because... The Empath Band, if you're a progressive rock fan, is a super group, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, and I was like desperate to want to see that band live and and, you know, and also Devin is and, and yourself are so good at sharing on the Internet. Um, so you feel like you get to know people when you consume their content. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I hear you. And I, I think that's that's probably uh... One of the reasons why I'm why I'm doing this is to kind of like make up for that time that I used to spend with fans after the shows. Mm. You know, so that was like for me. It's it's interesting because I started very late to become sort of a touring musician. I was 38. You know, I, I don't know how old are you now. I'm uh, 32. I had to think about that for a second. Yeah. <laughs> um, so when did you start touring then? Uh, 2011, so 10 years ago. Okay. Yeah. And it and was, what, it was, sorry. What was that gig? That was Stickman with, with Tony Levin and Pat Masolato. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And I mean, I've, I, you know, I always considered myself to be a professional musician, but I had never really toured on a larger scale. And, uh, you know, there were, I remember saying to Pat, Pat Masolotto that I wanted to tour more. And he said, like, be careful what you wish for, because <laughs> it was just a few months later that that he invited me into that band. 
Wow. Yeah. And it was, it was really what was, was missing in my, in my musical life, just kind of like to be able to present myself, well, my music or my weight, well, not myself, it's really the music or my, uh, my attitude and compositional skills, musical skills to an audience. Um, it was so important, obviously, like, yeah. but, but I was, I was not, not really hoping, I was never even dreaming it would happen. Mm. So, um, did you, what, what do you think delayed you? Was it because of your, um, cause it seems that you were busy composing and, and producing records and teaching. And, and is that why you didn't get on the road just because you were busy all the time or? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, it's, 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 it's a good question. I mean, thanks for asking that question. Um, what delayed me? Um, I would, I would say I, I think I'm a very late, uh, how do you say that? Late bloomer. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I are, think, yeah. There are advantages, I think, to being a late bloomer um, because, you know, uh, I think it might not be a stretch to say that you're one of the few people of your generation who is um, experimenting with social media and incorporating it into your career. And I think if you're late, I could also consider myself a late bloomer, but I think you get in the habit then of incorporating new things. You're always trying to learn yeah. what's what's coming next and and yeah. that can be an advantage. You know, I think the, the real reason is that I have always sort of been at some sort of cutting edge and there's not much, there's not, not much space for that in, uh, in the public eye, right? So, the fact that um, I then joined Tony Levin's band, really, like, and I'm still so grateful because he's already had a 50-year-plus career at that point, mm -hmm. right? So, so that that's the reason why people come to shows. That's why people don't care what we play; they just want to see Tony initially, right? right? right. And it's like it's like the ideal situation to be in as somebody who's um, not compromising uh, musically, you know, like, but. You know, but before I had that that outlet, there was simply was I didn't have any reach. You know, mm -hmm. well, and when I say that, obviously there were fans, and like I was I was lucky that my very first album got played a lot on um, a radio show called Star Sand out of Philadelphia. Uh, that was in '98, and and so I had already kind of like a small fan base of you know, sort of ambient music um, fans. Um, yeah, and that was that was that was that was kind of good, you know. That's why also I have I still have a very very strong relationship with the American market, with the American friends and fans I have. Cool. And uh, yeah, but but you know, I think I think it's it. You know, there's there's uh, many many things I want to talk to you about, but um, I see that there's been like a really uh, big change in how. Um, young musicians kind of like um yeah i mean how should i say this i i think it's it's much harder for people to really develop their own voice nowadays mm -hmm. and people don't really see what is required to do that like because it seems the in internet gives people the impression that uh yeah there's all the information is out there and all i need to do is like read the book or watch the YouTube videos and I'll get there. But the work that is required to actually become an artist rather than a player, let's say, right? 
Right. Um, it's not, it, you know, this kind, this kind of information still is not out there on YouTube. Okay. So when I, um, when Rick Beato started out uh, like four years ago, so I had a long um, chat with him on Skype. Hmm. And I was saying to him, hey, Rick, you're like the like maybe the first one and also Adam Neely already at that point. Kind of you, you guys are completely demystifying this, and you, you guys are, are giving. Well, I said that's Rick. Or you're you're giving out this this insider information, um, and uh, but you have no way to. Well, you 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 don't really find a way to teach the art behind the music, mm. and and that's really maybe why I was kind of like interested in talking to you because like watching some of your videos, it it, it only took me a minute or so to realize um, what your what drives you. At least what I think drives you. And that there is this this deeper love for music that is um, that comes from the art art side rather than from purely um, performing performing musicians side, yeah. and and so um, and only then did I learn that you that you had started your YouTube channel uh, in response to the pandemic, uh, right. right? And so, and you know, so sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. You go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that um, in a way, the timing was fortuitous for me because, um, you know, similarly to you, um, the musicians that I've always been interested in have been people on the cutting edge, like you said earlier. And um, when I moved to New York um, a little more than 10 years ago now, um, one of my all-time biggest heroes, um, the saxophone player and composer Steve Coleman, um, who I'm sure you're familiar with him, he was giving these weekly master classes at a club called Seeds, and it was like $20. You could go to Seeds on a Sunday and just basically hang out with him, and he would tell you about the way he makes music. And one of the biggest things that sticks out to me from him is that he said, when I was a young man, I realized very quickly because of the people that he was working with, um, who included like Von Freeman and then uh, Sonny Stitt and Dave Holland, um, people like that. He said, I realized very quickly that if I was going to take my own path, it was just going to take me longer. Mm -hmm. So he, he saw a lot of his peers have success while he was still basically trying to figure himself out and practicing a lot and studying a lot. And um, that hearing him say that, it sort of, it changed my view of what my goals were. It, it changed my view of like why I even moved to New York. I realized that like, if I was really going to um, create music that had as much value for other people as Steve Coleman's music had for me, that I would also have to take this path, you know, of mm -hmm. a much longer path. And so, um, so I didn't have the sort of young and early, well, I didn't have public success. I still, I still considered my twenties very successful, but I was a working musician. Um, and I, I don't know if you might not know this about me, but I, for the first three years after I graduated college, I did a first national tour of a Broadway show. And still to this day, um, except, you know, except for this past year, um, playing on Broadway has been one of the main sources of my income. And, uh, 
and a world that I really appreciate and respect the, the level of musicianship there. And if the pandemic had never hit, I think that I would have continued to have such a comfortable life that I would have had no reason to publicly share anything on the internet. Um, I started doing YouTube out of desperation because I lost all of my work. And I, um, I happened to be lucky enough that I went to school with Adam Neely. And so when the pandemic hit, I saw immediately, like, and eight years too late, how smart it is to be um, engaging with new technologies as they, um, mm -hmm. as they like, I, I just realized far too late, like, wow, Adam is brilliant. What he's been doing has set himself up for a situation where, at least from my perspective, he has a supportive community of people who will allow him to continue working regardless of what's happening in the world. And, uh, and I thought it's never too late to throw my hat in the ring as well. Um, so that, you know, and I'm sure you feel the same way. This will never replace touring. This will never replace teaching. Um, it's not, it's not, in, the intention isn't to replace those things. It's just to, um, make my sort of, um, outlook or ethic about my, um, career that I'm just going to share as often as I have time to, um, regardless of what else I might be doing in my professional career. And, uh, and I think that there's value there because, you know, um, and maybe you can relate to this too. Um, when I was in music school, one of the biggest complaints that I constantly had in my, in my own head and maybe also amongst friends when we were having a couple drinks or something, um, I always felt like there were a lot of teachers in the academy who didn't have professional experience. And, uh, and I felt gypped. I was like, why am I paying, um, you know, to be learning from somebody who's never had a professional music career, um, through no fault of their own. These are the teachers that we have, or they, they have 12 years of education in their, you know, they usually, at least in the States, I'm not sure what the situation is like in Europe, but in the States, you, you period, you have to have a PhD or a DMA to be considered for even a very, uh, you know, low level, um, non-tenure track position that's compensated laughably poorly, you still have to have the highest level of an education. And so, you know, the teachers we have, um, they don't have a choice but to spend their sort of their youth reading and writing and learning and, and doing all those great things. Unfortunately, it doesn't prepare them to teach people about the trade aspect of what we do. You know, like there's a lot of just nuts and bolts and common knowledge that you could never have unless you've invested your time in actually performing and um, and creating your own music. So it sets up a kind of a conundrum there where I think that um, the, the timing was right for me because I have now had a lot of professional experience in a variety of different aspects of, of the um, music industry, but I'm not so steadin or I'm not so stubborn or set in my ways that I can't try something new, you know? Um, 
So, I, and this brings up a whole nother worry that I, that I often have about my older colleagues, um, the people that I came up admiring and learning from who maybe don't have the, um, the skill set to adapt to this time. And I worry about what we would lose if, if those people, you know, the people who are 15 or 20 or 30 years older than me, um, if we don't have their voice in the conversation online, you know, um, simply because they don't want to learn Final Cut Pro or, um, or Pro Tools or whatever, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, you've, you've, you've uh, raised so many um, questions there already. You know, like, like the question, the question really is, should somebody who is primarily a musical artist, let's say, um, have to um, present him or herself um, by being their own pro video producers and content producers. I think that for some for some people it kind of kind of works. I don't I, I don't know if it works for me. Uh, I'm I'm sort of um, trying to keep everything extremely low key so that I can actually handle it. Mm -hmm. And um, and also, I mean, this is kind of like interesting. Like, I have already turned around 180 degrees in my life once from the person who was you would who never wanted to be on a stage to a person who felt better on stage than in the audience, right? Mm -hmm. And and so now, kind of like even like putting my face onto something like this, it still feels feels super awkward. Because it's it's because things have never been about me, but now I have to. Well, for me, it has been about the music. So now I I kind of like have to have to utilize my own person to um, to, to deliver the message. Let's yeah. say. But yeah. then when I say the message, I don't know. I don't even know what my message is as somebody who's talking, right? Mm -hmm. Rather than composing or improvising. Right. Right. So. That, and that that really is um, is a major. Well, for me, it's not a big concern because I'm just doing it. I'm just doing this, and I'm going to see what what will come out of it. And I don't have um, I don't really have uh, high expectations. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it was it's the same for you, but I have been noticing that um, in in 20, 2021, like social media has become much less active like um numbers have gone down like even like like bandcamp sales have gone down dramatically in the last few months stuff like that where i'm i'm really i could be i could be super concerned and maybe i am a little bit but at the same time i think it's sort of like a precursor to something that's going to happen like there's some some change in scenery that at least i can't predict mm -hmm. and may it may be the return of live music or whatever i yeah. don't know i mean there's um there's a lot in what you just said um and the the main thing for me beyond like you were saying um that you know it's it involves changing your life so dramatically to start to create content and do that whole hustle it it makes me think about you know i remember being younger and really getting 
super uh, angsty and emotional about having to do my day jobs. I mean, I, I still currently have not one but two day jobs. Um, and one of them is teaching at a school here in Brooklyn. And the other one is doing video editing freelance. Um, I've never not had a side hustle. But it's always bothered me because I've always thought kind of in this weird absolutist thing of like, I can't devote enough time to composing and practicing. And so I know that all this time that I'm spending doing the things that I need to do to survive, it's limiting my capabilities as a musician. There's, and that's the truth. And you have to get comfortable with that fact because um, I don't think you can survive if, if you're going to be a person who um, who chooses to forego um, the the you know the normal sort of uh, social things you need to do to make a living. Like um, then you're going to make your life so much harder, and that's going to prevent you from making great music in its own way, right? So um, so I don't think it's necessarily healthy to be like the auteur, like the person who's like, all I'm going to do is practice and I'm going to, and mm -hmm. I'm going to put out a million records all the time and just be an artist. Like, well, if you don't have enough money to invest in making a record, then your plan is shot. Nobody's ever going to know about you. So, so there's this balance that you have to do of like, how much time can I devote towards my passion? And that's an investment, not on just a, in time but also in making things and 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 then how much time am i gonna spend um simply just trying to survive and now in addition to all of that which is already enough stress for a normal person now it's like am i also gonna put all this time into making videos and like learning new software and um mm -hmm. and learning to speak to a camera is a very time consuming and stressful and um, you know, it's just like, it's like the pandemic introduced like 20 new skills that we, you know, not just for musicians, of course, but for everybody. Um, and so I th wonder that I, I want to get, I don't want to do anything that I do poorly, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. So now that I've committed myself to making videos, I'm going to try and make the best goddamn videos I could possibly make, right? And so that means now I'm spending like 30 hours a week working on videos. And that's time I could be practicing. That's time I could be writing. That's time I could just be walking around and going to the park and having coffee with friends. And hey, so maybe we should be more concerned about people of your generation rather than the older guys who've already had a career in music. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that's true. That's true. But the thing is, at least from what I've, you know, not, not to hypothesize about, you know, I don't want to speak out of school, mm -hmm. but if you're in your fifties, the vast majority of musicians are not ready to retire, mm -hmm. you know, they still have to work. And, mm -hmm. uh, and if like, what's so strange to me is that like, I have middle schoolers and high schoolers who are fans of me. And they, and they write to me and I try to write back or they comment on videos and I try to respond and, and cultivate a positive sort of community. 
and then they haven't heard of any of my heroes, you know? And so, I mean, to go back to like um, the types of, I, I feel like it's incumbent upon me to introduce younger people to Anthony Braxton, who I made a video about, or, um, you know, whoever I, I want, you know, um, recently I did a live listening session for the first time on my discord server and we listened to Sonny Simmons, who's one of my favorite alto players who, um, I just don't think enough people are aware of his work and, uh, and that while it's flattering and it's helpful for our careers to have fans that are into what we do, the fact of the matter is is that music is an oral tradition and it's passed down like no ma my most original idea is not that original it's coming from the people that i've studied and uh and and i owe them so much and it and i think one of the things that that we owe to our predecessors is to um you know is to trumpet their work as often as we can like um because they might not you know they might not be able to do it themselves yeah i, I agree i mean just this this whole aspect of learning about or learning music history is um well i think it should be part of every music curriculum even like in I was going to say preschool, but like really, <laughs> really, yeah, but why not? Why not? You know, like sure. some, some aspect of music, his, musical history, it's, it's so important. And I find that, you know, for, for a while I was, oh, I was always saying that my role in this world is to build a bridge between, you know, the old and the new. So kind of like, you know, the music that exists is up on, up until the second world world war and then kind of like tying that into today's world that's sort of like how i see my music a little bit mm -hmm. like skipping skipping quite a bit of uh what happened starting from the late 50s um yeah till the end of the 60s maybe or something like that but um i mean it's it's fascinating that and, and i think maybe um well, not maybe, I, I also know that's the case here. There are like these schools for popular music. So where it's not, where it's not about, where it's not the classical approach. And I don't mean classical as, I mean the traditional approach mm -hmm. um, to learn about music, but where you get into, you know, I was teaching at this this pop school in, in Mannheim once, you know, guitars and all, you know, they were like in their early twenties and nobody knew any great guitarists they only knew um slash like, like who's your who's your favorite guitarist slash wrong answer yeah and yeah. and you know no I, I felt i felt really really sad you know like the and you could tell that they weren't into music they weren't in, in that school because they were into music yeah well and 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 that is that's kind of like that it's kind of like shocking i mean like they, they can do with their lives whatever they want but uh you know, like how can they ever, you know, find happiness if they start their career that way? You know. Um, but unfortunately, there are just there always are going to be a lot of students who 
don't know what they want to do and maybe music is the thing that made them feel special or like it was the thing their talent you know mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so they just think to themselves i guess i should do that and uh and uh and that's kind of it and then you know if you don't really listen i remember even when i was in college that there were a lot of people that just didn't even really listen to records you know yeah. it's like mm -hmm. how how could you i don't understand that and um and I, I think a lot of those people probably went on to do something else later you know um and and the same is true for the history and um you know yes slash is a part of history but um if that's the extent of your your curiosity then then that's you're you're setting yourself up for yeah you know but but i think what is important as you said is that as a teacher nowadays you have sort of some responsibility to um to allow your students to discover some artists that they wouldn't hear of or from um and um it, i kind of like the same thing happened to me i had a, a piano teacher when i was around 14 maybe and he was the guy who, who mentioned uh, King Crimson to me and uh, David Torn. And, you know, just by hearing those names, I became curious and I, I, you know, I found recordings and, you know, that's, that's sort of how it went for me. And well, um, this is sort of, uh, you know, unrelated or something of a, of a uh, red herring, but hearing <laughs> you say David Torn's name, you know, it just makes me think there's a lot of interesting intersections right now that are happening between the progressive or like progressive rock community and the avant-garde jazz community because David Torn is is um, has has been involved either as a musician, a producer, or the mix engineer for some of the most cutting edge jazz records and um, especially by Tim Byrne and his band and one of my close friends who plays on one of my records and who is a is one of my the a contemporary that i look up to is this piano player named matt mitchell i don't know if you are familiar with his work yeah, but i am yeah of course you are you would love his, i'm sure you, yeah um and so i was texting with matt the other day um and somehow he got started talking about mike keneally and he goes, oh yeah, Keneally's a fan of mine. He like he sent me a really sweet letter, or or an email or something, and I was like, no fucking way. I can't. I I was genuinely surprised that Mike Keneally was aware of Matt Mitchell, and and but once he told me that, it made perfect sense. There's so many confluences between the style of the music; they're almost becoming indistinguishable. You know. Um, and it's cool because David Torn has a, a background and a skill set that a lot of jazz musicians don't like having worked with great pop artists and rock artists and spending so much time in the studio and, um, and having an engineer's ears. And so he's, he's really added a tremendous amount of like, um, like meat to these recordings by people who would typically would sort of just spend a day or two in the studio and then that would be it, you know? Um, so 
it's very cool to me, um, you know? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, that's sort of like the place that I'm coming from where to me, music is music. And like, I, I, I just love all sorts of music and just like, like Mike Keneally, he's like a real, real music buff. You know, he knows everything. He knows so much music. And, um, like when we were on the bus with, with Devin, we were passing the, uh, uh, Spotify playlist around and, uh, which was a lot of fun. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, like I, I find like one of the really, um, most annoying aspects of musical scenes is sort of like how protective some people are from, from letting others in or letting others getting recognition. Um, because I, I think that to me, the ideal, the ideal person, right. I would even say is like that is the Renaissance man, like is the, the person who, who is good at, uh, science at math at music and everything like, because, because if you are like that, you're driven by, by, um, um, by some sort of, um, curiosity that is, that really should be, I find the, the source of, um, of all creativity and of all research musical or otherwise and composition, right? Because I, fi I find that, um, yeah, of, of course you can be a composer who just, you know, recreates something, right? But the, the important question is, or what should be driving you is what if, like, what if I do this, what will it sound like? You know, the stuff that you can't imagine, like th that's, what's interesting. Yeah. And, and, and David Torn and like all people who are kind of like producers and musicians and writers and, um, you know, and people who do all sorts of different styles. Those are the ones that I admire the most. Me too. And, you know, I think that aside from the fact that having an intellectual curiosity about things, um, aside from the, the obvious fact that it just makes life more interesting, um, it's also got a very pragmatic function, which is that, like, I don't think that it's a coincidence that Devin Townsend or Stephen Wilson have had sustainable careers. Whereas, again, the vast majority of their peers, I think, have not been able to do it so well. And I think the reason that they are able to do it so well is because they do every fucking thing themselves. I mean, mm -hmm. really, like, Devin, I don't know, I've never met Devin. I mean, I'm fangirling right now over the fact that you play with Devin. I'm a huge, huge Devin fan. Um, you know, uh, in fact, I just lost my train of thought. Oh, <laughs> no, but I was just going to say, like, um, you know, it, it, he, he doesn't rely on anybody for anything. You know, mm -hmm. he could for, continue making records for the rest of his life without anyone's help. You know, and, and so could Stephen Wilson and so could David Torn. And um, so uh, so there's the pragmatic element of that. But then just for the purely philosophical or, or philosophical is not the right word, but just the more general benefits of being intellectually curious. It's like you could you could sit down and zone out and, and completely like sort of like slack jawed watch Netflix, or you could watch Netflix and notice things, look at the framing, look at the editing, look at the coloring, look, think about the color grading, and it just enriches your experience. And those things will inspire your music in ways that you might not predict. Mm 
So, um, so I, again, I agree completely with you. And, and there's, there's an unfortunate sort of, um, bent in the music school, the schools that are churning out young professionals of like teaching people that they need to like really aggressively specialize. Like, at least in my experience in New York, there's all these people that are like, I just want to play like X. All I want to do is play bebop like Hank Mobley. And that's my thing. And then all that, you know, like, um, that's not really gonna, you know, what about when you need first, this is very saxophone specific, but what about when you get called for a gig and you need to play pop saxophone? You're not going to be prepared for that. Or what about if you get called for a gig and you need to play clarinet as well as saxophone? You're not going to be prepared for that. Uh, yes, you'll be the very, very best person at the in the world at the one thing you do, but I can't really see how that's going to help you build a sustainable career. And so that's one of the things I'm always trying to express in my videos is like, don't just be curious about like, yes, it's great if you love John Coltrane. There's a lot of young people who that's just like, they just, they love the sheer velocity and joy of like high level bebop. And that's understandable, but take those ears that you're using to like listen, like to analyze like um, Roy Haynes's drum fills, take those ears and listen to a, a Phoebe Bridgers record with the same ears. You're gonna be surprised by the depthness and the, the robustness uh i just said depthness yeah amazing <laughs> I, I coined that word internet that's my word no but all i'm trying to say is like you know if you listen to the reverb tale of that there's so many also in our worlds progressive music and jazz music there's so much disdain for like simplicity and for like oh it's just one chord like to me if if i ever hear somebody utter like Oh, it's just three chords. That's a pretty clear tell that you're not a very deep thinker because it's there's a lot more involved than mm -hmm. just the chords or whatever, you know, like um so I'm just like that I'm just all about being excited about and interested in everything anyone's creating. I mean, I could go on and on about it, but I don't want to waste your day. <laughs> so no, no, that's that's exactly it, and I think that is one of the one of the aspects that is sort of like um, hard. I would say probably hard to teach over the internet. Mm -hmm. um, so, like, like I, what I was when I was talking about Adam and uh, and Rick, for example, as giving away um, this this insight or you know this deep knowledge, let's say. Yeah. And the, it sort of it sort of pre-chews information that people need to need to chew themselves, mm. right? Like for that's probably a good metaphor or not? I don't know. But <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm serious. I'm serious about that. I'm, I'm and I have to say I'm a, a little bit concerned, like because yeah. it things look so easy for people. Things look so incredibly easy. Like when I started this thing with Sean, like people have no fucking idea how difficult it is to even just play one single note. And like you, you know, you know, you as, as a wind player, you know, there's so much that goes into just even being able to get one note out of the instrument. Right? Mm -hmm. So and people when they when they are young, 
Okay, and I don't I don't want to define what young means, but you have all these dreams, and you also have these delusions where like your dreams sort of like tell you about structures, let's say, like so you may be able to imagine the whole space of what you can do with a musical instrument, right? It's like like reading the book about saxophone playing, right? Yeah. The best book which has everything in it, right? But you've read it and you know nothing. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and and this is this is sort of like the uh, the tendency I see now, even with with information that, you know, has been sort of well guarded for a while, where, you know, and, and this is this. And I'm not, I'm not saying that I don't like it. I actually was extremely happy when when Rick Beato, was, you know, appeared. Mm -hmm. But um, but I'm just curious to see what what, what future generations um, will be able to do with that information if yeah. they will able if they will be able to use it art artistically, or if yeah. it will or if it will be another slash moment, right? Right. <laughs> um, right. And you know that. But so, I want to preface what I'm about to say by saying that I've been really working hard over just the last year to like fundamentally change a little bit about my outlook about the world, which is that maybe things, maybe we're always at a sort of an equilibrium and nothing gets better or worse. It's just that things are changing. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so while it, it is, it is, interesting to think about how this new way of learning will change the way music gets made and the quality and the kind of music that people make. Um, I'm fairly confident that there, there's always going to be really creative individuals who will do well, you know, who will, who will carry the flame forward. Um, that being said, you know, earlier today, I, I did an interview with a student whose master's thesis is about YouTubers, music YouTubers. And while I was happy to help him out, that's interesting to me. It's like, I spent the whole interview being like, you shouldn't really worry about what I'm doing, but maybe like, worry about what um, Elliot Carter did or something, you know what I mean? Like, um, it's strange because there are people now whose whole goal or whose whole idea of what it means to be a professional musician is to be that person talking to the camera, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's what they want. Um, they don't realize that for most, if not all of us, it's sort of like a, a drudgery that we have to do in order to invite new fans into our world and 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 get new students and, and have um, the purely like sort of uh, the reality of needing uh, high numbers on your social media platforms in order to book gigs, you know? So it's not a fully positive thing. And, um, and, and the other thing is that, you know, ed music education is a transaction and unfortunately, so people want to feel like they're being given something. And that means that there's a lot of YouTubers and music educators out there who are like 
this is the one thing you need to know about this, or this is how you play bebop, or this is how you play like late era Coltrane or whatever. Like they're they're lying to you because there is no one thing that you need to know, and there's no shortcut to sounding great. And um, but if a if a music educator were honest and said, well, here's the truth, it's a big fucking mystery, and I don't know just as much as you don't know. I'm the I'm learning myself. You know, if you tell people that, then there's going to be a lot of people who are like, "This is a ripoff." Like, I, what did you teach me? Like, you 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 taught me that. You know, they want to be given a PDF with like twelve exercises. They want to be given a play along. They want to have something tangible for this mm-hmm. transaction. Um, and um, music, as far as I can tell doesn't really lend itself to that kind of a thing um it is a mystery it is like there is no right or wrong way to do things um and i guess again i sort of that realization has sort of changed the way i look at my like my own musical output which is like it's really important to me that when i release songs or videos of myself playing that I'm actually showing people like you can do stuff a different way. Like, because I think that's an important, um, you know, moral to, to get from, from music. That's what I got from hearing the power to believe. That's why, that's why those musical experiences changed my life because like it clicks a thing in your head where you realize, Oh, there are people who are doing the, doing something different intentionally and actually that the maybe the the sort of uh like the the history that that like daisy chains us all together is that very thing is doing is learning what your forefathers and foremothers did and then deciding not to do that (laughs) you know what i mean um and so because like Unfortunately, from my perspective, it seems like the things that are more popular on the internet are things that are replicable and that are impressive, um, you know, um, and the things that are less popular are like um, meditative uh, ambient music, for example. There's, if, there, if there's nothing that's going to like grab someone's attention in the first two seconds, it's just not made for this kind of a platform you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah and and there we are so do artists need to learn how to develop you know how to make that kind of content right that and i don't i have to say i just don't see myself as somebody who want really wants to do that like even even the idea that some people, you know, said to me, just make, you know, make like three minute clips out of your interviews, like the best of Brian Kroc, right? Yeah. Like, and yeah, even though I like the idea somewhat, and I may do that. Um, but that's not that's not kind of like what I want to, what I believe in, I believe in, you know, sitting down or just, you know, even if you're, you're commuting, you know, listen to this whole interview. Because right. you need to know how we got from A to B, right? The context is again like the history. Even just the history of the last sixty minutes is important, right? And yeah, 
Wow, that's a good, great um, way to put that. Yeah, well, I mean, you're at least what we can both say to ourselves when we shut our eyes at night and try to drift off to sleep is that we're making an honest effort, you know, like this, this all, both of our experiments and sharing stuff on the internet might turn out to have been for naught, but, um, I don't, I don't think so at all. Yeah. I think that, um, what you do, um, will have a huge impact on a few people. Exactly. Right. right? And that's, that's really what is beautiful you know, than to not have an impact on a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, not to keep coming back to our like shared interest in King Crimson, but like, you know, it's not like, you know, even though King Crimson's success in the world of, of pop and rock music is astounding. And, uh, and it's why that, you know, Fripp and and blue and the whole constellation of people around them have been able to like um, to continue to present that music um, to big audiences. Um, but even still, like there weren't any other kids my age listening to uh, "Happy with What You Have to Be Happy with," you know, like I, and um, and that's okay because um, you know. There, you know, there's always are going to be artists who sort of figure out a way to find their niche and operate outside of the powers that be, and uh, and you know reach uh, you know their niche audience. Um, and that might be one of the biggest boons about the internet is that like you know the music that I make is uh, is you know certainly not um accessible i guess um i just became comfortable with the fact early on that i probably wasn't going to make money from my music so i just decided not to worry about that so every record i've ever made is just like my my like um pipe dream you know mm -hmm. so the the youtube channel it's like you know i have some videos that have a lot of views but the videos of my music do not. And that's okay because the people who, who are for every maybe 100 or a thousand people who, who encounter my shit on the internet, maybe one or two of them will become lifelong fans because something really resonates, you know? Yeah, exactly. Hey, I'm, I'm not so sure like people who are not um, creating content for YouTube may not know that, uh, the, you know the the stats also show you the um, the average view time, and that is that is just amazingly sh positively and negatively shocking, right? <laughs> yeah. right? It always looks, the graph always looks like this, you know. Within the first fifteen seconds, most people click away. I'm sorry for that noise. No problem. Yeah, it's it's incredible, right? Like some some uh, you know you have like an average of two minutes on a ninety minute video, right? <laughs> and so then you you really know that there's only a handful of people that really get the whole to get to experience the whole piece of work because this you know the the these these conversations I consider them to be 
uh, you know, uh, artistic utterances, mm -hmm. right? It, they are, right? And and it's it's something to like, okay, like you know, it would also kind of like raise the question, like how many people have ever fully you know listened to a whole CD of yours? <laughs> I mean, I I know that there's probably more than you would assume, but. But you know, this was kind of like the the advantage of this older format of the CD. Like something like first of all, you you don't you don't need to know, you know, and you it is difficult to know. There's there's like one one thing that I uh, found very um, interesting. Like when I started to realize that I don't, it was in the early two thousands that I realized I don't want to give away my music as promotion. So whenever I meet. Uh, an artist that I uh, like, I'm not gonna give them my CD. I'm not even gonna tell them that I'm a musician. Mm. I just wanted I want to develop a relationship on a purely human level before, and then they can find out that I'm a musician. I don't want to impose myself. I right. don't want to give away CDs. And so when I then uh, later was in a position where I had a label and and uh, we were sending out uh, promo copies. What I did is I, I made sure that there's no shrink wrap on any CD I'm sending out for a very simple reason. Because when, when you in the future, you're going to meet a person that you sent a CD to like 10 years ago or five years ago, and you see it there in their CD shelves and you see your CD is still shrink wrapped, hmm. you never want to experience that. It's absolutely okay <laughs> because you, you, know, you don't want to know that they never listened to it. Yeah. Right? See what I mean? Um, and that is wow. Yeah. yeah. Because it happened to me. It happened to me even with with people that you know. Yeah. This yeah. this example kind of like it happened to me, and I you know I think this is this is also the kind of like knowledge that you don't you don't you know people don't tell you this in order yeah. to keep a healthy uh, healthy mental state. You know, always you know never send shrink wrap cities. Yeah. Well, that's so fucking funny man i it's uh, i'm sure it's happened to me so many times especially with just family you know like yeah <laughs> thing that people may not realize and that used to really hurt my feelings is like you know um i i would you know put out this record that i invested like all of my savings in and i spent thousands of hours writing the music and and it was this is like my this is me giving away my heart, seriously, like the most important thing in my life. And my mom doesn't even listen to it. Yeah. But then when I'm playing, when I'm subbing in the Book of Mormon on Broadway, everyone's talking about it. How exciting is that? Or, or you know, like I played with Jamie Cullum at the Beacon Theater and everyone says, oh my God, he's really made it. And really, I couldn't give less of a shit about the, I mean, I give a I give a shit to the extent that I'm a professional and I will, will always play my best and and stuff. But those things don't actually mean anything to me. Like they they don't. They're just a gig, you know. And um and it does really hurt your feelings when you find out that like. Um, but then on the same on the other end of that coin, my fiance's parents will like put on like we'll be hanging out drinking wine or whatever and they'll be like let's listen to big heart machine and i'm like no please don't play it right <laughs> now. it's so but at least it's really sweet that they are showing that they care and they and mm -hmm. and i'm more like i don't want to subject a social setting to to my like uh you know aggressive and like complex 
<laughs> avant-garde like shit, you know? So I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'll just never be happy either way. And and there you go. I think one of the, the big misconceptions um, is, uh, is this quantity versus quali- quality question. Um, like we already talked about that with, you know, like influencing people, but um, also with your own music, I think it's, it's really important that you, first of all, you, and I may, don't mean you, like, I mean, one, you know, one does it for oneself. Mm-hmm. That's, that's really, it's very important. And I, I think, uh, I think I'm still very good at that. Like, you know, if I get excited about a project, I just, I just do it for myself. And, and my experience has shown me, like, if I, if I get excited about it, some other people will get, get excited about it. And that's enough. Mm-hmm. That's enough. I don't need, I don't need numbers. Yeah. And, and that's, that's why getting to do this YouTube thing is sort of, um, uh, can be, can be frustrating. Like when I see like this one of like, or some of the most, like the most amazing conversations I had, they obviously have only, you know, very few yeah, people yeah. watched it through. So, and you want to be, you want, and I just had this happen recently, like where I, the video that I worked the hardest on and I, the whole time I was making it, I thought in my head, this is going to do so well. People are going to love this. And then it got the, it was like the least viewed video of my last 10 videos or whatever. And you want to be the type of person that doesn't give a shit. But if I'm being honest, it hurts my feelings. And, um, and you know, the same thing with all of that shit, like comments, it bothers me so much that I care. Like I, I, I get, I get a mean comments or somebody or, or a dismissive comment, which is even more upsetting. And I think Mm -hmm. to myself, I should not give a shit about this. It does. It, I don't want to be a person who gives a shit about this, but I do, I, I do. It hurts my feelings and, and, but artists are sensitive people. And, and when you share something that you, you know, when you share something that comes from your creative mind and, and your, your heart, it, it, it's a very vulnerable position. And that might be something that people don't realize when they, when they leave a mean comment, um, they might think like, um, well, that they might not really see you as a person or they might not really realize the, the amount of vulnerability that it takes to, uh, you know, like, like, like when I was a kid, I used to put on a record and it'd be like, this sucks. And, uh, that almost never happens when I'm an adult. I might say I don't like this, but I also realize that whoever made that record worked their ass off to make it, and uh, and that's just something I didn't know as a kid. So it was easy for me to be dismissive, um, and and then you know I also just wanted to say, speaking about numbers and stuff, um, it I, you know I agree completely. I think it's. Um, it's been hard for me to come to grips with the fact that from a just purely pragmatic perspective, I want to book my bands at better and better gigs. I want us to move up. I would like to play festivals. Like I've played festivals with other people's bands. And I think to myself, 
my music is just as good. Why couldn't we do that? And the fact of the matter is that the, the vast majority of the people booking these things, with some rare exceptions, um, are going to look at the numbers first. And they need to make sure that they're making a sound investment. And there's a lot of counterintuitive things about the music business because there are festivals where they don't do that. Like, for example, there's the Big Ears Festival, which happens in Tennessee, and it's a huge deal. It is a big festival, and it's because they only book acts um, based on their quality and and they have a reputation for um, for curating a really beautiful experience. Um, and you would think other festivals might see that and be like, huh, maybe if we you know, like <laughs> paid attention to, to that, it might work for us too. But, um, but it takes a lot of courage and, and you don't see it happen very often. All of this is to say that I've, I'm trying to come to grips with the fact that I need to care at least to a certain extent about the numbers. I need to care as much as I can say to myself, I'm doing my best job to make, to be a good, like, to usher my music into the world, you know? To, to... Uh, understandable, but what does that mean exactly? Which numbers do you need to care about in order to get a better festival gig? Well, all of them, your, your social media numbers is going to be the first thing that the booking agents look at because they want to know that you're going to have a draw, you know? Mm -hmm. So you might be able to book yourself locally because you have friends who will come out or, or, you know, the people who own the establishments or whatever. But, um, but when you're dealing with strangers, you gotta give them some sort of guarantee that, that it's going to be worth being open that night, you know, um, that they won't lose money by booking you. And God, I've played so many, the last tour I did with my band, we played so many gigs where I felt tremendously guilty because I felt like I bet these people are losing money tonight. And it's because I couldn't draw a big enough audience, you know? So like, so yeah, so all of the numbers to, to that extent do matter, you know? Um, at least that's sort of my perspective right you now. See, yeah. You see that the point I'm trying to make here that it's, it's never just the number. It's also the quality of relationship you have with your social media following. So for example, if you, if you can count on, say, just say like 10% of the people who follow you to read what you send out. And then another 10% of those will consider going to a show. Right. Then another 10% will be in the, in the, in the area where the show is. Right. And so, right. so there, so it's, it's about, it's, it's about more than just the numbers. It's about the, the quality of the, or say the friendship you have with those people. Totally. And, and something that you're making me realize that I'm leaving out of my thinking is that people can pay for numbers now. So there's a lot, a lot of people who appear to have big careers, but, uh, but they really don't. They just yeah. have, have bought likes and bought views. And yes. um, so, yeah, that's where analytics come in handy because, um, you know, I don't have a huge um, number of followers, but I know that like, that a lot of them are engaging with my work. And I, and it's funny too, because you start to actually recognize people's names and stuff and, and like, um, and they feel so excited that you're even 
responding to them or whatever. And those are the relationships you want to cultivate. And yeah. that's also, you know, why I think Patreon is, is a valuable model because, um, and I keep trying to tell all my friends this who are reticent or, or reluctant um, to do a Patreon page is, is I, I spent last year, I had, you know, for the longest time I had like eight patrons or whatever, but it wasn't like it was worthless because um, first of all, those eight people were so supportive that it actually made emotionally, it made a difference to have people say, mm -hmm. thank you. We really appreciate the work you're doing and it's of high quality and we watched it, you know what I mean? Or whatever, like that's helpful. And then um, the other thing is like, those things grow and it's the same with, with YouTube as I'm learning now, like, um, they grow slowly, but, um, but noticeably. So, um, so even if you, you know, I spent a whole year on Patreon, I did my taxes a month ago and I, I think I made a thousand dollars all year on Patreon, but I had started it in May. So it was not, it's real it's real money but it's it's not substantial mm -hmm. but i am hoping that it will grow right so it's the same with with all of these things if you if you um if you really engage um sincerely with your fans they'll tell their friends and they'll stick around and then like you know that's that's why i look at certain bands like I saw Dream Theater a couple of years ago and I used to love them as a kid. And I, I thought, I bet the majority of the people in this audience are people like me who have seen them like 14 times or whatever. And that they're gonna go see them every time because mm -hmm. that's how much they feel invested um, as opposed to artists that, you know, might headline a festival this year and then just drop off the map, you know? so you, you see let me let me say something um maybe sobering or maybe just 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 old man ranting um i i get the idea of the pay you know patreon or the patronage in general and it's some it's it's kind of it's actually the foundation of my um of my music and of my business in um, in the year 2000, I started a business with a friend. We still have it. And um, our main objective was to, to be our own patrons, to be able to make our art. Hmm. And as you were saying, we never expected to make, uh, you know, money with our music. Right? So I find it's somewhat shocking like the development in the in the music business or you could say in the explo exploitation of dreams right like music business is one big aspect or always was one big aspect of that but nowadays it extends to so many people who are who even let's just say who just have like dreams and they start a patreon or they start a youtube channel I'm not talking about you here but some people who have just like very 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 slim chance of having any success right so they but they have this this dream and they follow through and i encourage that i encourage that really deeply you know mm -hmm. however i find there is like an evil aspect to platforms that you know like crowdfunding platforms 
and also something like Patreon, where they take a share, regardless of what you do, how you do it, what the quality of it is, right? Mm -hmm. So what happens is that, that basically um, those companies exploit the dreams of the people that use those services. Mm, and I and I think I, I knew I, I'm like I'm just I'm just putting this out there, you know. But I think it's a specific it's a specific kind of evil that maybe has always been around. But technology now makes this possible, like the scalability. Like you you just have to set up the website once, right? And you can scale. You know, it doesn't matter if you have a hundred users on Patreon or a hundred million, right? Mm -hmm. But the business takes like their like. I don't know what the percentage is right now, but when I looked at Patreon, I was I was shocked how how much they take. Yeah, they do take a lot. Um, and but the thing is, you know, we're being exploited everywhere we turn. I, the same thing is true about music education in the university or the conservatory. They're exploiting their students and their students' parents, and. Um, and they they know it. That's a big reason why I have no desire to be a faculty member at one of these schools. Because how can you, in good conscience, know that the you know it must be if if numbers exist, and I bet they do. I would bet that like ninety four percent of people who graduate from music school do not have a career as a musician, and. And I just, for me, it would be so hard to sleep at night knowing that all my students were in for that disappointment. And like you said, you know, like, I don't think it's my place to discourage anyone. So, you know, even if I had, like, you know, this is uh, anecdotal, but I had a teacher, but the classical saxophone teacher at the University of Illinois, where I went to school, um, she she to told one of my buddies who was a saxophone major, he, he came out of his lesson one day sobbing and she had told him she didn't think he was talented and he should pursue something else. And he went into dentistry and I think what she did for him was like the kindest thing she could have possibly done and it must have been so mm -hmm. hard for her to do. Um, so, you know, like, so yeah, so students are being scammed big time by music school. Um, at but at the same time, do I not want music school to be available for people? No, I want I want people who want to study, go to higher education for music to be able to do that. So it's just like you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. Same thing with Patreon. Same thing with YouTube and whatever. Like. That's why at least as often as I can do it, I'm telling people that, yes, you should have a day job or you should be have a professional goal in mind. Like, like I always had the goal in mind of being a woodwind doubler because I knew that that was a very marketable skill and it supported me for 10 years. It allowed me to make four records, none of which I made any money on all of which are my pride and joy, the greatest achievements of my life. And I'm so like, uh, I'm so proud of them. Um, and I spent tens of thousands of dollars that I had no business spending on them. You know what I mean? I, I, I did that on purpose because I um, also had a pragmatic aspect to my career. And I, I always try to make sure people understand that you, 
need that, you know, um, you need to be sure that you can make, you can support yourself in some way. Um, so, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's so, you know, I know I, it is, it is complicated and obviously, um, it's it like what we, the situation we're facing is sort of like basically is capitalism, right? And that's kind of what, what we're seeing. But I still believe that even though you, you, even though you may live in that marketplace, you don't have to uh, partake to the extent that, you know, you can still, you have still can choose a little bit. That's true. Right? And this is, this is sort of like, um, yeah, I mean, you know, I was, I was lucky that my, like two of my teachers when I was um, 18, one was Robert Fripp and the other was my um, uh, music, like school, school teacher. Um, and they both told me, Marcus, you should not go and study music. Wow. They both recommended and said that. And um, like Robert Fripp said to me, Marcus, if you're a professional musician or composer, you'll do it anyway. That's what he said to me. You know, so did you not? You did you just? No, no, no. I did not. I mean, mm -hmm. obviously, I stu I studied like a, for myself, right? Like I, I I practiced a lot. I studied a lot, but I I I um I'm a I'm a uh, PhD in psychology actually. Wow, I did right? not. That's very yeah. cool, man. And and that was great advice. I my like sort of mentor when I was doing my masters was Jim McNeely, who's uh, a, an incredible piano player and composer. And he had, a, he has adult children and he discouraged them from going to music school and they all had aptitude for music. Um, mm. And when he told me that, I was like, what the fuck, man, I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm going into student loan debt to study with you. And you're telling me you wouldn't <laughs> let your own children do that. <laughs> um, and it's uh, so, that's that's very cool. I, I think if I had it to do over again, I probably, I mean, I don't, it's not worth um, speculating about. I don't have it. No, say it, say it, say it. Well, you know, I think that my parents were so scared that, you know, I, from the, from an extremely young age, I was putting bands together making my parents take me to bars to play shows and um and making recordings and it, it's just that there's never been anything else that i've been interested in i was a good student and i i did well and stuff but i wasn't it, it was always clear to them i think that that i would do this but they were really scared my dad is a doctor and my mom was a doctor and became a school teacher and and so i think they needed i think part of me going to music school was for them because they needed me to have a degree in the thing, you know, and um, and you know what's interesting is that I had buddies who forewent college um, and did other things, like either started working. Uh, one person in particular I'm thinking of who who didn't go to college and started working immediately, and he bought a house well before any of my other friends, um, and uh, or I had friends who just decided to go on the road and tour and and uh and do that and i used to always think man i if i were smart i would have done that um because touring like that is something you can only do when you're a young person like really like do the thing where you're like jumping in a van and crashing on couches or sharing rooms and stuff 
you know, I did a little bit of that and it's grueling, horrible, dangerous because you're like driving eight hours in a day on very little sleep and that kind of shit. You can only do it when you're when you're young. So, mm -hmm. you know, but um, but, the you know, that a lot, I think similarly to a lot of people, the decisions you make when you're around that age, 17, 16, 18 or whatever, and you you're you're making decisions based on very little um understanding of what your world is going to look like and most of us you have to tell me more about studying with robert fripp because most of us don't have somebody like that when they're 18 years old you know um i think basically people are taking a guess they're being like maybe i'll do this see where it leads me so um but but it's so interesting to me that fripp discouraged you from studying music that you got a PhD in psychology, and and then did you work professionally um, in that field some in some capacity or? Yes, yes. Hmm, yeah. Interesting. What what did you do? Well, it's um, mostly mostly uh, in education, like lecturing. Uh, okay, interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, but I still I still do I still use my. Well, I still utilize what I learned. Let's just yeah. put it that way. I'm sure. You know? And it's it's more it's more you know. But I I went to a university that was uh, kind of like more specialized in the uh, in the science of psychology. So it wasn't clinical psychology, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. and and sort of like it has it was a really um, fantastic foundation for, um, you know, becoming uh, or being a self-employed person somehow like I had an understanding about the world that um, it, it was just it was just a really good education I have, mm. I have to say and I, I was also lucky because when I um, I did my like I did not have to go to the army when I was um, a young man I I had the um, you know the option to do a civil service thing so I would I was 18 months I was working as a male nurse hmm. and that was obviously like a real that was like proper shift work you know and um, in a in a in a uh, urology department which was pretty tough like with lots of people dying and like you know it was good really good school and that was that was before I started studying psychology so the combination of having like some real world work experience and the psycho psychology studies, and at the same time, I had like my music career already, like the the you know studying music, composing, creating music all the time, and also developing my own system for for this um, you know it's the Chapman stick back then, like the right. touch instrument, right? That was that was really like um, that has given me superpowers somehow. Was it because of Tony Levin that you got into the Chapman stick, or was it uh, um, another? No, well, it was it was because yeah, Tony was kind of like the only person who like publicly used it, and it was uh, um, obviously the King Crimson album "Discipline," where I first heard the Chapman stick, and you know, Elephant Talk opens with you know right. some. You see the video of them playing on <laughs> Letterman or whatever, and yeah 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 so so yeah, Tony was Tony was um, certainly important for that, but again, it was Robert Fripp. Because I, when I went to uh, the first course with Robert, I, I had just turned 18, I think, 
or was I still 17? I must have been 18. And um, yeah, I was 18. And I asked him about the Chapman stick in my very first personal meeting with him. And he re recommended that I should try it out. And, and I did, and I, I liked it a lot and stayed with it. So. Wow. Um, do you, were you just studying privately with Fripp or was he his? No, no. He, uh, Robert used to have um, a series of um, seminars, let's say, which was called Guitar Craft. Mm. And he started that in 85, I think. Oh, wow. And um, he's, uh, you know, I, I can't remember which year it, it stopped officially, um, maybe 2012 or so. But he did that. He did that for a long time, and he was, um, you know, like using a very uh, different kind of uh, way of teaching music, which is more music instruction rather than teaching. I don't know if that, you know, um, and, and this would be like we could, we could talk about this for hours. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't want. I want to. You know, get into that too deeply, but it's. It's been incredible and like the most, yeah, maybe the most important um, encounter in my life was with Fripp. Wow. Um, you know, like musical encounter. And he really, he really set me up for um, the kind of success that I had by, by giving me the tools that I needed. And the funny thing is that the, the tools he gave me, maybe even in the first, first 20 minutes of being in his presence, like, and I knew what I had to do somehow. Wow. Wow. He's that kind of teacher, like really amazing. Wow. And, um, and, and up to this day, I still, I find myself um, practicing something. And then I, I remember the moment when he told me or when, when he was talking about doing that. So, so like, like his lessons, they still. I see. Like, I see. So you, you can like, you, you can realize within a moment, like, oh, that was something Fripp was trying I can to trace, trace it, trace it back like 30 years. Yeah. Wow. That's so fortunate for you. Um, you know, this is neither here nor there, but the first time I saw Fripp in concert, he was opening for Porcupine Tree playing solo um, mm -hmm. sets. And, um, and this was, I can't remember what year it was, but anyways, I didn't know what he looked like. And when he came out to start playing, he was, it was the setup he had where he was surrounded by like three road cases full of, um, you know, analog gear. And he just sort of like sat on a stool and played like a, he was doing an ambient set. So he like played like a chord and then was like tweaking some knobs and I don't think anybody in the whole auditorium realized that it was Fripp because it was like darkly lit. And I was sitting on the edge of the stage with my legs dangling right in front of Fripp while I was playing a set. I didn't even know it was happening because I thought it was a tech like checking. Um, <laughs> and everybody was talking over the music and stuff. And then all of a sudden people got pissed and we're going like, Shh. and that's when I realized like, oh, damn, I'm being so disrespectful right now. Um, but uh yeah that's funny so your 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 first experience with fripp you learned in 20 minutes things that you've taken with you for your life my first experience with fripp i had my back turned to him and uh <laughs> was ignoring his music so that's that's interesting yeah <laughs> yes you know like stephen wilson um coming back to patreon and stuff 
Right. Is he on Patreon? I don't think so. I don't know, but I don't, I don't think so. You know, he was clever, like even 15 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, when, when he started selling uh, special editions and uh, box sets and stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, Tim Boness, who uh, he's, he has this band with called No Man. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're aware of that. Yeah. Tim, Tim and a couple of friends had started this, um, this label slash uh, online store called Burning Shed in, in 2000, I think it was. Uh-huh. And, and that sort of like already was sort of like the extension um, that kind of like makes sense. Right. So where I think about like people now trying to, to use something like Patreon and, you know, like using, you know, putting middlemen into the equation rather than taking them out. And I think that the really the, 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 the modern musician really should should have the mindset of taking the middlemen out. Right. And but, you know, and this is something I find myself repeating again and again to people because I get a lot of younger people asking me questions like, um, how, did, how did you figure out your brand or how did you figure out your whatever? And the answer is I didn't. I've been doing this for a long time. And I, I and, and the same thing's true with Stephen Wilson. There, you cannot replace all the work that he put in for decades to get to a position where he could sell, um, you know, where he could sell things directly to his fans. Um, and this, I guess, just goes right back to the beginning of our conversation. I think that there are a lot of people under the impression that you can just sort of like decide, like, I'm going to be, I'm going to be like Stephen Wilson. And um, well, no, you have to go on your own path. You have to put in the work and, and, and establish a track record of like, of uh, you have to have a body of work and, um there's no way around that you have to go through that yourself and figure out who you are um but in the meantime while you're doing that you're not going to have people who want to buy shit from you there's no reason for you to even start a patreon because there's you don't have you have to be realistic with yourself you don't have something of value to share (laughs) that comes from a lifetime of doing it um and so you need to have a job you need to have some kind of way that you can support yourself. Um, so, yeah. In <laughs> fact, to be completely um, transparent, I feel like I'm on the I'm on the, the the sort of precipice of like I still am at a point in my career where what I need to be doing is accumulating experience. I've only made four records, and um, I've spent years on the road in other capacities, like as people's supporting, like, you know, just as a hired gun. Um, but I'm still at, and I, I think I should be more vocal about this in my own videos. Like I'm still, I hope that I'm always in a learning phase of my life, but I'm still also somebody accumulating experience. And I think, you know, a listener would be wise to seek, um, input from like, you know, elders, um, people who like, like I did and like you did, you know, like to learn from people who are really, really, you know, have a lifetime of work in their past and not just from somebody who's a a cute, young, cool guy who like, 
you know, might seem exciting at, at this moment, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, um, I want to ask you, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm going to cut off, uh, this line of questioning, but it's, you know, I don't want to, uh, you know, take too much of your time today, but I, I want to, I, the, the fan in me wants to hear about, um, touring and I mean I know you guys got cut short but playing in the band with Keneally and Devin Townsend and and on and on you know um what that was like how the live how the live shows were going because I remember hearing that there was going to be a lot of improvisation involved um and usually you know Devin it seems has done like pretty pretty timed out and like locked to the grid types of shows. So, um, so I, I, I do, I feel like I would kick myself if we got off the phone and I didn't ask you about this. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's, um, I can tell you exactly how that, how that went, you know, when Devin was talking about that band, he, he was just sharing his ideas, right? I think he wasn't prepared for the band to be completely free. I see. Right. So, so it turned out, you know, that, you know, we did play, you know, there were no backing tracks and no click tracks whatsoever. We had a great monitoring, uh, in your monitoring and we were playing freely. So he could, he could change the tempos. He could ask us to stop during a song and start, start again and stuff like that, which was really, uh, very, uh, very organic. Right. Wow. It was 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 fantastic, um, and like at the uh, rehearsals, um, we we actually did have a whole piece which was improvised in the set, like a long improv, like uh, the collective improv by the whole band, which um, he then dropped, which I think was probably not because he didn't enjoy it, because he uh, thought that it went probably went too far. I don't know. You don't even know it was a conscious decision or whatever. Uh, in the place of the of the group improv, he did just an improv with Morgan. So it was just the two of them. Cool. And then then later in the tour, uh, Diego, Diego joined on, on keyboards. So it was the three guys. Um, you know, the imp- improvisation, it was it was kind of like funny. If, if, as I was preparing for the tour, I learned all my parts and then, you know, just the way I am, I started like, like, you know, playing around and improvising around the themes and stuff. And I had, I had sent him, uh, just a little clip of me practicing. Right. And he was already pretty, uh, pretty clear then that he didn't want it to, um, divert too far from, from the original parts. Mm-hmm. So, um, but this, this, you know, this, I'm, I'm not, I'm just reporting this, you know, it was just uh, not being judgmental about that at all. I don't, I don't think he was being judgmental. It was yeah. just, it was just that um, he is very much aware of what he wants. He really, I really, I really would say that he is, he is really a musical genius. Like one of the few musical geniuses I've met in my life. Mm-hmm. And and he knows exactly what he wants. And the interesting thing is that he also knows how to get it. He is a really great leader. He's a great communicator, a great friend. And he, um, he has sort of like this uh, uh, great skill to say yes when he means no. Hmm. And 
<laughs> which is which is just just wonderful how he did it. I was actually very impressed because I I sort of uh, have been in the situation of of being a leader, let's say, a band leader, and like you, you as well, and and like how he dealt with people making suggestions, for example, was very interesting. Yeah. Like so, he you know he just allowed he allowed the idea to be uh, uttered and tried out. But then he found a way to kind of wrap it up in such a way that no, we're going to do it my way. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it, it was it was great, and like it was uh, like some things were super unexpected. So, for example, he wanted um, uh, Nathan, you know, the bass player. Yeah. He he uh, had prepared all sorts of sounds, and they were like like the the metal kind of like bass, like really huge distorted sounds and stuff and and uh Devin didn't let him use any of those in the show oh, wow. so everything was kind of clean and uh you know and and the drum parts um in some places they were simplified uh and and the grooves were changed in ways that we did not expect at all hmm. um uh, lucky animals for example mm -hmm. um you know like you know all these things were the, it was was super interesting and and yeah, it was a pretty, it was a pretty, um, like fixed parts throughout, except for a couple, couple of jams, um, a couple of solos I played, like me, three little solos I played in the set. And, uh, so did, did you see the, uh, the DVD or the, no, I, the, the thing that was, um, where was that recorded? Yeah. A London, London roundhouse. Roundhouse. It's, yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I've uh, seen little clips of it but i haven't seen the full dvd yeah but i, I think you should you should you should as a fan you should see it because it's really amazing uh, how far Devin has now gotten and um just just to see that it works you know these arrangements they work without without the backing tracks actually they work without click tracks and they become more alive and more emotional and like i i had really the most amazing uh musical experiences on that tour with you know um emotional emotional experiences on that tour it was incredible interesting because yeah you you know like i always um understood why not just Devin, but i think really a lot of bands and a lot of my own live performing situations have been situations where you're you've got your in-ears in you basically turn the click track high and you turn maybe a keyboard or something that that has uh that's electronic so you can listen to your intonation mm -hmm. and then you start ignoring other stuff because it it doesn't really help you play because you're you're stuck in a such you're stuck in this um carefully worked out scenario and i've, I've i understand why people do that because you're trying to recreate for an audience in the case of Devin, like these really intricate and mm -hmm. layered and dense and um uh mixes and and for a fan base a rabid fan base who has high expectations so you want to deliver that to them so then it i just was i really wanted to see this band to see what it would be like without all of that um uh, and it's it's great to hear that it actually made it more meaningful because that would be my gut intuition. That's what I love about 
you know, improvised jazz music. That's, you know, for lack of a better term, I love mm -hmm. being in situations where people can't fully prepare and have to take in feedback and have an actual discourse and risk sounding bad or risk um, that element of, of risk and also the element of, of coming together and listening, you know, yeah. um, is, is of the utmost importance to me. And I, I think I might be really biased also because of doing so much musical theater work where you get extremely jaded and, uh, and, uh, you know, you really aren't even listening. Like I, I did, I've done tours where I literally was, had like a Kindle mm -hmm. up in front of me and was reading a book while I was playing, you know, or, mm -hmm. and then on Broadway, there are guys who are watching HBO cause they're down in the pit. So nobody sees what they're doing. Um, you know, and that to me is about as dark as it gets. And I, I, I always think to myself, like if I were in a situation where I was, doing something so absent-minded while I was holding my instrument in my hands, that would be, you know, the death of music. That would be the end that it, you, there's no point to do that, you know, because at that point, if you're just doing something to make money, let's be frank, there are much more, there are much easier ways to make more money <laughs> than, than this. So if that's your goal, you know, why even do it then, you know, I don't know. But anyways, yeah. it's great to hear that you guys, uh, that you had such a beautiful experience. Uh, yeah, it was, it was uh, wonderful through and through, you know, there was, um, everything was perfect. And he had, he had handpicked everyone in the crew and handpicked the band, obviously. And yeah, yeah. it was just incredible. And, and when I say he's a musical genius, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I really, I really think so. And, uh, mm, I, th I think, I don't know, um, it's, it's kind of like difficult even to, um, to find words for, you know, how to explain what that means, but there's like there's some sort of like, uh, like a totality of, of, um, of, of grasp on, on the, on the whole thing mm -hmm. that, that sort of, um, seems almost superhuman like mm. like and i'm not i'm just not not talking about what any every single or just one single element of what he was doing like playing the instrument perfectly singing in tune like like every night yeah like the most amazing parts right but also hearing what everybody else was playing like at the same time like kind of like he it was just just mind-boggling mm. right and yeah. And and just seeing how he how he could play and sing every single part of his music, like you know, some people wouldn't even care to know the parts, but right. he, like, it was just just incredible, you know. Especially like given his his uh, the way that he talked about himself sometimes, right? And like, it doesn't really come come across as as such a. I mean, I don't know. Like, I've I've only the funny thing is that you know, like when I said earlier that I think you need to. Uh, meet people in a non-musical situation to really develop a great, you know, relationship. And I'm, I met Devin at a non-musical event. It was just uh, a dinner, uh, right? And he didn't, he didn't know who I was. 
and we just we just started talking and we sort of became friends before we even before we even knew who we were right yeah, like, yeah or we knew who each other you know and uh, it and just a few w- weeks later he sent me an email saying would you like to join my band wow it's incredible that's so interesting <laughs> well first of all i do want to say like you know we don't know each other but you do not seem like the type of person who would say that somebody is someone is a musical genius lightly. Um, so I take that seriously when I hear you say that. Um, and, uh, but, but I, I also would say that it's not surprising for me to hear, um, that you would say that about Devin because mm-hmm. he does exude, I would think it would be very confusing to be a person like him because the temptation to have an inflated ego um, and to believe that you're, you know, how do you ride that wave of like, of like having genius level uh, um, overview of your work and then, but also not becoming a huge prick and like um, Mm -hmm. difficult to work with or whatever and, and not having an inflated sense of self or whatever. Um, it's actually been interesting over the years to observe his journey, you know, and that's, and he's certainly cultivated an, uh, an audience who will follow him no matter what he chooses to do, which is amazing. I'm, I'm really, you will, you'll be, you'll be very surprised about uh, the new album. <laughs> I can't wait. I can't wait. It, it's oh, which it's, one? Puzzle? Puzzle? The, the, yeah. The puzzle. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I can't wait. To, I, I don't really know much about it other than like he makes little hints on, on Twitter. I'm not enough of a fan to like watch his Twitch streams or, or, or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's really uh, something very special. I can't wait. That's do you, When is it coming out? I don't know, but it's it's done. I mean, I have received the masters to listen to it, so. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And I, I played played a small part in it. Like, but you see, it's so incredibly dense. It's really very hard to tell who is doing what. <laughs> cool. I, I'm so excited for that. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so Brian, I mean, I, I really, I really like this conversation a lot because, um, even though we're talking a lot, we're not necessarily, maybe not necessarily talking a lot about ourselves, not not um obviously promoting something um um, but which which one of your albums would you do do you think that you you said you had you've released four albums yeah so um i guess if uh, for new fans and or for new listeners i'm sorry and for people who are um maybe not as much aware of jazz and are more aware of um, you know, other progressive music, then I would recommend checking out my record Big Heart Machine first, which is my first record. Um, it's a big, it's a jazz big band instrumentation. And that's sort of my pipe dream project. I, I've, I've never done anything but dump thousands of dollars into that project. And, and my sincere goal is to have it be like that for the rest of my life. I, I, I consider Big Heart Machine the central focus of my musical output, um, and it's it's an eighteen piece big band that features like my whole circle of peers here in Brooklyn and in Manhattan, and um, and they're it's cool because 
you know, it's I write all the music for that group, but it's very open ended and it's built up of personalities who don't have a lot in, in common. The, the people in the band come from all sorts of um, areas of the jazz world. Um, there are more straight ahead players. There are people who just play like uh, avant-garde extended techniques and everything in between. Um, uh, but the core of it is a rhythm section that is my other band, which is called Little, L-I-D-D-L-E. And um, and that's like a quartet or quintet. It sort of changes from time to time, depending on people's availability. And so, so Big Heart Machine, the first record is self-titled. And then we put out a live record last year, um, uh, which uh, I'm also extremely proud of. And then Little has a, similarly a studio album, and then we did a live record at the end of, we did like a three week long, like guerrilla style tour where we played like 16 shows in three weeks. And then we, uh, the last show we had was at a really beautiful recording studio. So we just also recorded it. And the vibe is amazing because we're all just like near the end of our ropes emotionally <laughs> after three weeks of being you know, in a van together. And uh, so, yeah, so so that's my music. And then, but I also have been recently tr attempting to um, create, you know, bits of music that are digestible on, on the internet, because those, those are records that I would hope you would, people would experience them the way that I intended them, which is like they're, they're an album, you know, and uh, I don't think they, I think they have the maximum effect if you listen to them straight through. Like the Big Heart Machine record, the core of it is a, is a long suite that's like 40 minutes long. Um, and uh, it, I just, it wouldn't really make sense if you don't go from point A to point B. Um, uh, but I do have little, like, you know, nuggets of musical goodies on my youtube channel so like I, i'm making music videos with my band all the time that aren't in the context of an album that are just um you know little one-offs and then i also do a series of videos that's called um x for a shitload of woodwinds where it's just me multi-tracking myself playing all of my uh, arsenal of woodwind instruments so, so double reeds, English horn and oboe, and um, the flutes, piccolo, flute, alto flute, and then clarinets and saxophones and recorders and stuff. So, um, and and that's that's like sort of another uh, aspect of, of my career that isn't related to my bands. It's just mm -hmm. sort of projects, so. Yeah, wonderful stuff. I, I checked some of it out. And like I said, it's just instant you know, I'm, I'm uh, instantly recognizing uh, where you're coming from. And uh, that's, that's, a, that's a great thing. Thanks, man. That's cool to hear. Yeah, I'm, I'm, like I said before, I'm essentially learning in public. You know, I'm, I'm just really, I, I, I want to, I hope that I can someday be a great musician, you know? And so I'm trying to do things that will improve my artistry and so you know hey, let me let me tell you one thing you you are already a great musician 
Oh man, thank you so much, Marcus. Again, I just don't think that's something you'd say lightly. So that means a lot to me. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm also saying it lightly because it is, it's true. Like at every single point in your life, you are already who you are, and you're already perfect. <laughs> that's beautiful. Wow. It's, it's a matter of fact, and you'll see. Like the older you get, the more you will understand that. Because looking back, like even though you know it's a, it's it's a noble thing to you know to. to um, want to get better at what you do and to learn more and stuff but that does not mean that your current uh the current version of yourself isn't great already mm. you know and this it's something that you know and like when you said you were that you were uh 32 years old you know i was i was thinking dude like your life hasn't even started yet but you know <laughs> I, I i but i'm only 16 years older right right, right? so <laughs> and, it, and as you as as at least for me as i age it really puts people's accomplishments into perspective because you know like right now i'm checking out um i'm like going deep into the music of eric dolphy who i've always loved mm -hmm. but i've never done a proper study of and he he passed away but right when he hit his prime and yet he has you know six or seven perfect records and and he made so much music you know, life-changing music with Charles Mingus and, or you just have to look at somebody like Charlie Parker or somebody, you know, people who accomplished so much before they were even 30 years old. It's, mm -hmm. it's hard to fathom. Um, but then again, yeah. you, know, <laughs> you know, the interesting aspect though, is that uh, um, some of those people that you just mentioned, they became famous and they, you know, they are sort of, I hate to say it, but it's mainstream. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. You know what I mean, right? So, but if you look outside of the mainstream, so if you're looking at artists who never make it, right, who never make it big enough, let's say, mm -hmm. um, they only start getting recognized when they're in the mid 40s or something. It's it's really it's really super rare that people young people are getting recognized. I I don't know what the psychology behind that is, right? Just like general skepticism, uh, like older generations. Um, you know, you know what I mean. So like, like, but when there's a generational change, and when when you have gray hair, you know, people will experience oh, oh, you. <laughs> Trust me, I do. <laughs> but go on. But but yeah, no, I'm just just saying. It's kind of it's interesting, you know. There's um, a lot of people, and this is both true for music and yeah, pitches in music, and also um, um, age. Some people kind of like always uh, focus on the relative, right? Like the the intervals, right? Like somebody at you know with the age 32. Could have experienced more than somebody who is 62 years old you could say that but then there is an absolute quality which i found now like i believe there's something like an absolute quality about the time you spend on this planet that does not relate to the things that you've done mm -hmm. so there's there's something that is independent of what you have experienced in your life it's again it's not about it's like the time spent is something interestingly enough is not a it's not a uh, it's not a quantity it's a quality hmm. 
and and this this is something that I keep that I just I'm in the process of learning about, mm. and and that's why I think that you're like the next like say um, eight ten or like twenty years of your life are going to be amazing, right? Well, you know, <laughs> here's hoping. I hope so. It's funny too because the last ten years of my life have been unbelievable, and like. You know, the kind of success that I've had in the world of music is not public. It's not um, it's not notable in a way um, that people would critically laud or whatever. But I was a working musician and I and I I, I that's never lost on me that I've been able to um, essentially learn and enjoy myself every day and uh, and and support myself in that way. To me, that's already quite a lot of success and more than I could ask for. And also, you know, that's one of the things I love what you were saying about, you know, people who have been on the world longer, who have existed on the earth longer than me, I believe necessarily deserve my respect. It doesn't matter to me what they've accomplished. And, um, and that's one of the things that I really, that won't, that has never stopped resonating about the, the sort of culture in the jazz world is that um, the elders are passing on information that, you know, even when they're people like, um, you know, who, who don't sound as good as they did in their prime, they still are transmitting a knowledge about the world through their music and and there's it's still something that you should take every opportunity to experience live even if they are you know can are just the shadows of their former self in, in terms of instrumental technique or whatever um and that's something that that i really believe in you know um like no, no amount of sort of um, musical prodigiousness in an eighteen-year-old uh, is is worth more than uh, a sixty-year-old who is still playing music. You know, period. It's just. <laughs> it's again like here's another thing we could talk about for a long time. <laughs> Because like that, you know, then you would also need to know how long, how old is the performer. Okay. So if you just had like a blind test mm. and right, think about that. Like, can you tell the age of the performer? Right. Yeah. <laughs> and you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to, you know. Of course not. Of course not. <laughs> but, 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 that's but, the but, but, but I, I, I hear what you're trying. I understand what you're trying to say. Of course. That's Sort of the thing about the jazz mentality that I really appreciate is that it's 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 not there's so many more factors than just the the music that that imbue like a sort of um, uh, that that are heard in the music if you know what I'm saying. Yes. So, yeah. um, you know something that was has been super annoying for me recently is that a lot of at least the the stuff that comes to the surface that I see on like Instagram, uh, what's it called, the Instagram stories or whatever, um, yeah. like a lot of that is just 
stuff where I say, okay, yeah, you know, you, you practice this for 20 years and now you have your 15 minutes to show it. But like, I sort of like, I can hear the time spent. I can appreciate somebody, or, um, uh, you know, like gathering the energy to, to work on something that hard for such a long time. Um, but then it sort of like evaporates right in front of my, my ears and my eyes. And, and then I'm, I'm, I'm starting to kind of like, I would like, sometimes I would like to sh take a person like that and shake a person and say, okay, come on. Right. So it's time to wake up and just be the great person you are and all the love that you have like poured into this one little thing. Now, like build, build your career on that. Right. Yeah. And, and, um, well, yeah. when you operate in a world that that um, prioritizes flashy instrumental technique, it's endlessly frustrating because mm -hmm. both jazz and progressive music, like progressive metal, progressive rock, whatever, both of those worlds are have a very unhealthy obsession with instrumental technique. And it's it's endlessly frustrating when you hear something and you you think to yourself these musicians are clearly amazing but they seem to have forgotten what music is like, yeah. yeah this is music that is about technique and it's that's it should be vice versa um but yeah and, and, and but it's also also not uh, uh not something that is it's exclusive from each other right you can have a great technique and still play great music. Yeah, exactly yeah. true. But um, but um, but you, yeah. This is another area. man. I, I had a blast talking with you, Marcus. It's really like, um, uh, just kind of touched me in a way that you were even interested in hearing from me. Um, so thank you for for reaching out. I appreciate yeah, it for sure. And let's let's talk more at some point. I'd love to, man. Yeah, and and um, yeah, take care. And I hope you uh, do you still have two day jobs to do today? Well, today I am done after this. So um, but 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 I'm gonna, I'm gonna do some YouTube hustling after this. awesome, awesome. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to um, your new video. When, when are you trying to put stuff out regularly? Or how do you do this? Well, you know, I, 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 I'm I'm constantly reminding myself that my goal is not to be a YouTuber. My goal is for the YouTube to um, to be a beneficial aspect of my career as a musician. So mm -hmm. I'm not holding myself to any sort of schedule like that because it's just not feasible. Um, sometimes other things have to like take importance. Um, so, but I would like to put stuff out once a week. And, you know, this is a whole nother thing but one thing that i've learned from from having to do a video over and over and over again is that the um the i've sort of cured myself of perfectionism in a way i'm 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 just like all right this is good enough i can't continue to obsess over it let it go and do another one and that's a, a way of learning that i'm sort of not used to it used and because when i make music it's like if i need to take six months on a thing that's what it's going to take. I'm not going to just put out a record and say that's good enough, <laughs> you know, but I'm learning with the videos, at least like um, there is something to just repeating the process over and over again. So I do, I do hope that I can like 
somewhere around once a week. And then if I need to, you know, this year I'm getting married. I'm doing a, um, a summer program, the bang on a can, uh, festival. Right. Uh, it's just, that's just to, for me to learn. And so, and then the wedding is going to be a big thing. And, and so I'm not going to even try during those moments to think about, um, creating stuff. I'm just going to let myself, um, go during those. Good, good, good. <laughs> you know, I, I may be, I may be in Brooklyn in, in August. If, really? I'm, if I'm going to be there, I'll, I'll let you know. Yeah. Can you, can you say what for off the record? Uh, uh, well, I uh, probably, probably a show at Shapeshifter Lab. No way, dude. I love Shapeshifter Lab. Yeah. They, they, um, I made a hefty donation that much more than I could afford to them because they're, they're having trouble right now. And they're it literally my, my big band would not have been possible without Shapeshifter Lab. We played our first gigs there where I was paying everybody 20 bucks each. And there were like four people in the audience, you know, mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. there's nowhere else. Like there's maybe we've lost all venues <laughs> that you can do that at here. And it's, it's scary. I, I, I need shapeshifter lab to pull out of this because otherwise we're not going to have a workshop space, you know, and, and that would be really, really bad for the scene. Um, anyways, it's, I, I agree. it would be so cool to see you play there. Um, so yeah, yeah, I've, I've, I've played there several times. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's like, again, like this is a whole nother subject. Um, let's just hope that there's going to be some sort of revival of places that, uh, went bust, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, man. Okay. It was a real pleasure. This was this was two hours, so that's that's enough for today. But I would like to talk with you again, and um, always feel free to reach out to me. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Yeah. Last speaking with you. So. Um, <laughs> okay, Brian. You're probably going to bed now, so. Um, or... Well, yeah. I usually it's it's it's, it's eleven p.m. and I usually stay up very late or oh. early. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, then have a good night, man. Okay. Bye. All right, thanks. Yeah, see you soon. Bye-bye.